There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. But I felt worse for the people that work for Circuit City. Their livelihood went down the drain because management and the board made some poor decisions. Welcome to episode 42 of The Great Fail, a podcast that examines the greatest success stories and their spectacular fails. What led to the demise of the most prolific people, brands, and companies. I am your host, Deborah Chen, and this week we'll be looking at Circuit City. On a summer evening of August 2000, Alan McCullough sat on the back porch of his home with a glass of iced tea. He was contemplating his next move. Freshly appointed as CEO of Circuit City, he was faced with a tough road ahead. The number two electronics consumer retailer in the United States was experiencing a dip in sales, seeing its market share shrinking into the shadows of emerging rivals. Big box stores like Best Buy, Sears, and Home Depot, who were changing the landscape of the market, a market that Circuit City had essentially dominated for the last five decades. McCullough had joined the company with a background in merchandising and store experience, and the rest of the management team was relying on him to see them through the increase of competition. From his porch, he weighed his options, listing the pros and cons of each. And as dusk settled around him, he put the finishing touches on the proposal that he would present to the board the next day. A pivotal decision he came to that evening to eradicate the company's appliance sales, eliminating one of the company's biggest product categories. What he didn't know was that this decision would change the trajectory and fate for Circuit City. Welcome to the story of Circuit City. Launched from the back of a tire store in 1949, ultimately short-circuiting in 2009. Let's say you're in the market for a new appliance, maybe a television. Where do you go and buy it? I had to think on that for a moment because before taking a trip to Target or Best Buy, I think my first step would be, like many consumers out there, 
to do some research shopping online and either order it delivered straight to my home or go pick it up from a store with an idea of what I want in mind. Because the best shopping experience would be a quick in and out. It's all about speed, isn't it? But it wasn't always like that. Because once upon a time, there was a store called Circuit City. And it was the fairest in all the land. Fairest prices, that is. In fact, it was considered the one-stop shop for anything you needed. Electronics and appliances. They had the best selections, the best prices, and the best people. It was an all-American retail success story, a household name, and then one of the greatest failures in corporate history. The rise and fall of Circuit City is so fascinating. It's like a cautionary tale. It's full of ups and downs, an inspirational tale of how one company paved the path on an emerging market which was the consumer electronics retail market, but only to perish after almost six decades later. It's a case study that's become iconic over the years, a lesson on what happens when a big corporation gets a little too comfortable in their success. The year was 1949, and a young New Yorker by the name of Sam Wurzel sat in a barber's chair in Richmond, Virginia, listening as the man cutting his hair gave him the news of the day. Wurzel really wasn't supposed to be at that shop. Virginia was only a stopover on the road to North Carolina, where he was vacationing with his wife and kids. But had he not stopped in that day, he wouldn't have heard about the new TV station that just opened up in town, the first one to come to Richmond. Wurzel, a serial entrepreneur, was fresh off a failed import-export venture and had an aha moment. He predicted that televisions were going to be the next big thing. But my dad learned that the South's first television station was about to open in Richmond, Virginia. We lived outside New York, and he'd seen TV, and he believed it was going to be a big thing. And he happened to know somebody that was in the business of making TVs. A light bulb went off, and he decided he would move to Richmond and open a TV store. That's Alan Wurzel, Sam's son and also the former CEO of Circuit City for 14 years from 1972 to 1986. You'll hear more from him throughout the story. So back to Sam. During the time period, just after World War II, not many households owned televisions and TV stations were just starting to get off the ground. As those numbers began to rise, Wurzel went with his entrepreneurial gut and believed that more and more people would own their own TV box. He started asking around, taking to his Rolodex, and eventually made contact with a small television manufacturer in Long Island City, New York, who would provide him with an inventory. Within a month, he uprooted his entire family and moved from New York City to Virginia to start up shop. He thought naming it Wurzel, which was his last name, would be hard to pronounce, so he named the store Wards instead, an acronym representing the members of the Wurzel family, including his son, Alan, his wife, Ruth, his other son, David, and himself, Sam. 
The first store operated out of a tire store in downtown Richmond. And from this location, he wasn't trying to compete with the other department stores. Instead, his initial target audience were the lower income consumers. And he hooked them in with a unique two-part sales tactic. In-home demonstration paired with options for payment plans. It was brilliant. Because in most cases, once a family got a hold of a television in their home, they almost never wanted to give it back. Wurzel's gut was spot on. And we know that televisions eventually did indeed take off, becoming one of the biggest home purchases made during the post-war era, joining the other home appliances. Refrigerators, washing machines, stoves, all stuff that customers could now find at Ward's. You could say that it was the perfect business taking off at the perfect time. And it wasn't long before Ward's became a chain, a chain that brought in annual sales of $1 million. By the 1960s, Wurzel had his sights set on an even bigger prize. Ward's would go nationwide and it would go public. It would be 1972 when his son, Alan Wurzel, succeeded Wurzel Sr. as the company's CEO to begin the next chapter of the storybook. And those 14 years of his tenure saw an evolution for the company. For one, Wards took on a new identity with the name change to Circuit City. And then it went public on the New York Stock Exchange. But one of the biggest features were the store blueprints, which included large showrooms attached to warehouses. The checkout areas were strategically designed so that consumers could make purchases only with the help of commissions salespeople. Now, before you roll your eyes at the terms commissioned and salesperson, I had the same visceral reaction. However, keep in mind that back then, times were very different. Now, a lot of people then were buying large household products for the first time. Televisions that came out around the same time, washing machines started to catch on, then VCRs and dishwashers, and families were using a big chunk of their disposable income to purchase these new household staples. So having a strong customer service and customer policies were vital to making sales and bringing back consumers for their next big purchase. These commissioned salespeople provided expert advice to consumers, not just about which brands to buy, but also how to install the equipment and how to use it and so on. On top of that, Circus City also offered a 110% money back guarantee if you found a better deal elsewhere. The two most important aspects of success were treating their suppliers with respect. These were big companies, RCA and Whirlpool and others. We couldn't push them around, but we could try to mold their policies or persuade them to treat us in an appropriate way. And so having good relationships with your suppliers was important. Equally, or maybe more important, is having a good policy towards customers. We had the low price guarantee, the largest possible selection, the satisfaction of your money back, whole range of pro-consumer policies that made us successful. And we enforced them and we stuck to them. It was no question that Circuit City placed a heavy emphasis on customer service, so much that their slogan was, Welcome to Circuit City, where service is state of the art. 
It was being at the right place at the right time, but having the right policies was also important because there were other companies that in a short time did well with the rapid rise of consumer electronics. I mean, this was an incredible growth period for consumer electronics. When, as I said, in 1949, when TV started to be available again in this country, it was all black and white TV. And within a few years, it went to color TV. And then the hi-fi revolution of the music products of all kinds came along and we took advantage of a hi-fi boom. And then after that, computers and then telephone. It was one succession of exciting products after another in the consumer electronics field. But not everybody prospered. And some people had a short-term success and they went out of business. But Circuit City's policy boasted their excellent service and a huge array of products. By 1984, Circuit City was operating in 113 stores, easily the leading specialty retailer of brand name consumer electronics. And three years later, sales hit $1 billion driven by demand for new ancillary products on the market, like VCRs, surround sound equipment, and the like. And the Wurzels, well, they were making all the right moves, continuing the winning combination of consumer-centric focus and great selection. Riding the success, Alan Wurzel would soon move from CEO to chairman of the board and handpick his successor, Rick Sharp, to take the company's lead into the next phase of growth. During his 14 years as CEO, Sharp would see sales increase from $1 billion each year to $12.6 billion each year. Under Sharp, Circuit City became 700 plus stores, ranking it in the Fortune 500 company list and turning it into one of the most profitable companies in the country. But who could see the decades-long streak coming to an end? Because despite a run of great success, it wouldn't be long before a few glitches in the system would take down the whole circuit. The weaknesses in the business really started to creep up around the turn of the millennium. Around year 2000, competition from the outside got fierce. Those big superstores that had always been around but hadn't really been a threat, like the Walmart and Home Depot, now they were becoming formidable competitors, especially the emerging nemesis Best Buy. Best Buy was interesting in that they had similar business models, except they had a central checkout center, allowing for customers to walk in and out, offering the best prices without ever really having to interface with the salespeople. They were catering to the changing consumer behavior and Circuit City continued making the assumption that it was all about their sales staff. And our competition didn't do that. I mean, Best Buy, for example, you could walk in, pick something. They had it stacked out on the floor. They had central checkout and it was faster and easier for customers that knew what they wanted. For those customers that were insecure and wanted more information, we had a better sales staff and could give them more help than Best Buy, but the mix shifted and more and more customers just wanted to walk in, pick it up, 
and take it home. Management at Circuit City didn't see Best Buy as a threat until it was almost certainly an unbeatable opponent. And Alan Wurzel said it best when he was quoted, but the time you get in trouble is when you think you know the answers. Next was the fateful day when the new CEO, Alan McCullough, presented to the board and investors that they would stop the sale of appliances. Faced with big competition, Circuit City felt it needed to do something drastic, like rejigging its merchandising strategy. They decided to eradicate all of its major electronic appliance sales, a division that accounted for 12 to 14% of revenues. This meant no refrigerators, ovens, air conditioners. Instead, McCullough thought to replace these items with more entertainment products like CDs and DVDs and other low margin inventory that did very little to add to the bottom line. Best Buy, however, offered a mixture of both. Unfortunately, there would be more fatal moves. As part of the elimination of inventory came a plan to restructure and remodel the stores. Circuit City planned to relocate from B and C rated locations to A locations with more foot traffic. This plus a company-wide facelift would cost a total of $1.2 billion. The plan for existing store facelifts were to make it look more, well, like a Best Buy. More of a warehouse style floor plan, a brighter look with colorful signage and checkout registers that were placed near entrances for quicker access. It was a tall order, one that they couldn't quite fulfill. Instead of the 140 stores it initially said that it would be remodeling, in the end, the company only had enough money to do about 20 to 25 stores. Turns out a facelift was more expensive than they thought. They usually are. Well, I'd say the biggest problem was my successors did not change as the market changed. We had a very successful business in which every customer was approached and had to talk to a salesperson in order to make a purchase. We had no shopping carts. You couldn't come in and just pick something up and take it to the checkout. And that was appropriate in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because these were unfamiliar products and people wanted the assurance of somebody to talk to. But as these products became more and more commodities and people were buying their second, third, and fourth TV and their fifth radio and that sort of thing, they were more interested in finding the right item, picking it up and taking it out and not having to deal with a salesperson. That takes some time, the salesperson tried to step them up to a more expensive product. They didn't want that hassle. They wanted to shop like a grocery store because these products were had become almost as familiar as a loaf of bread. So we didn't change. We insisted that you had to talk to a salesperson before you could make a purchase. Best Buy's threat level had been growing for quite some time. In 2003, their market cap was 10 times that of Circuit City. Like I said, Best Buy had a much different operating model than Circuit City. They boasted their commission-free sales environment as one that created a much more relaxed shopping experience. 
Maybe the drastic measures the company took that year were a knee-jerk reaction to the reality they were facing, but the elimination of appliances meant also eliminating their sales team. And in one day, the company fired 3,900 of its highest paid salespeople, replacing them with hourly associates. In later interviews, Alan Wurzel, who continued to follow his company's progress from afar, saw this as a good move but with poor execution. In fact, it was so poorly executed, it ultimately destroyed the company. It killed morale, it killed hope, and it was a move that showed employees across the company that they couldn't expect open, honest communication from its leadership. This massive shakeup not only reduced the overall skill level of the company, but also caused paranoia and growing resentment inside the corporate culture. The next year, in what seemed like a revolving door of management teams, Circuit City appointed yet another CEO, Philip Schoonover. Decisions made under this one proved to be worse than the last, facing more declining sales despite slashing its inventory and employee count. Schoonover decided it was time to start another round of layoffs, this time firing an additional 3,400 employees. What leaves me speechless in all of this is that despite the layoffs to reduce corporate costs, it was later disclosed that Schoonover had received $8 million a year in compensation bonus package. $8 million on top of his salary. By the time Schoonover resigned in September of 2008, Business Week had crowned him one of the worst managers of the year. But wait, there's more. Over the years, Circuit City had some side projects, investment projects built by the management team. Some of those ventures were successful and others not so much. The most notable ones were the investments into a DVD tech space to capitalize on the DVD boom, which was abandoned after going at it for a year. And then another one that you may have heard of, CarMax. Yep the highly successful online used car platform where you can browse, buy, and have a car shipped to you directly anywhere from the United States. This concept turned out to be a home run and their most profitable business line. Circuit City was able to spin that off in 2002 for a lot of money, billions in fact. However, between 2003 and 2007, the company used that liquid cash to enter into a series of stock buybacks as Circuit City's stock price began to drop. The money just kind of swirled down the drain as they basically recycled it back to the company that was losing value each day. Now, companies oftentimes engage in stock buybacks when they feel like their stock price is undervalued. The buyback signals to investors hey, my stock is cheap, you should buy it at this price, and we'll put our money where our mouth is and we'll buy a bunch of stock too to show you that we mean that. It helps signal to Wall Street and makes the company look more financially attractive, even if the fundamentals were not. And in this case, Circuit City ended up breaking the bank in a futile attempt to save face. And I was not on the board at the time. They made a number of stock buybacks. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars of buying back the stock to keep the price of the stock up. And when the recession came in 2008, they didn't have any cash in the bank. 
didn't have enough cash in the bank. And therefore, suppliers looked at our balance sheet and they said, we're not going to extend credit. And if they wouldn't extend credit, then we couldn't have the goods on the shelf for Christmas. And so it was a vicious cycle. You know, the stock buybacks had emptied the ability, had emptied the cash register, so to speak, and reduced the ability of the company to buy goods on credit and therefore have them available for Christmas. By the time the U.S. entered into a 2008 recession, Circuit City had very little cash in the bank and very little faith from its creditors, having strayed from the streets paved with bargains, which was one of its early slogans, into a rough road filled with pitfalls and a steep decline. The company wouldn't make it to see next Christmas. By November 2008, Circuit City announced that it would close 155 stores and let go of another 17% of its in-store sales employees, a signal that things weren't looking bright ahead. A week later, they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Court filings showed that the company owed $3.4 billion in assets, but also $2.3 billion in debt and more than 100,000 creditors. They had two months to find a buyer, and though it was rumored that they may have two buyers interested, in the end, no agreement was reached by the deadline. Circuit City story isn't just about one big mistake, but a series of terrible moves that became catastrophic. Well, it's like a parent seeing a child die. You think the child is gonna outlive the parent. And in fact, in this case, I, as the parent, outlived the child. And so that was sad. But I felt worse for the people that worked for Circuit City. We had tens of thousands of people who'd been with the company, some of them for their whole careers, 10, 20, 25 years. Their livelihood went down the drain because management and the board made some poor decisions. At its prime, Circuit City managed 1,520 stores in the U.S. and Canada, with a workforce of 46,000 people. Like many great fails, it was a company that seemed too big, too successful, and too good to crash as hard as it did. Business schools oftentimes cite that this is what happens when success turns into complacency, a mistake that often proves to be fatal especially within such a fiercely competitive industry. Besides the one against complacency, Circuit City also teaches us a lesson that a company, not just its employees, suffer from poor management decisions. In this case, the widespread layoffs did more than hurt the employees. It was a deep cut to the company culture and a reminder that a company's lack of respect for its employees will boomerang back. And so I asked Alan Wurzel, what should be our key takeaways? Well, I'd go back to the habits of mind. If you want to be successful, you've got to confront the brutal facts. You've got to be curious. You've got to treat people with respect. You've got to think for the long term and not the short term. Those are the habits of mind. There are something like 18 of them, but you've got to have some basic principles of how you're going to run the business. And... Those are the bedrock of success or failure. 
Special thanks to Alan Wurzel for his contributions to this episode and sharing his story on his family's legacy business, the iconic Circuit City. And thank you for tuning in to this week's The Great Fail. Please make sure to visit our website at thegreatfail.com for behind the scene audio and video footage. If you like these episodes and want us to continue bringing you more, please subscribe to our newsletter because, well, not connecting with you would be our great fail. While you're at it, simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. The research on each episode is extensive, but none of them would be possible without the tireless efforts of researchers, writers, and reporters. They are all credited on thegreatfail.com under our show notes. Lastly, you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Great Fail Pod. And please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on iTunes to show your support. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. And remember, folks, with great failure comes great liability. I'm